0: Populism is a response to the suppression of democracy. And the, so people go into the street because they're being ignored and democracy doesn't function. To physically get together every weekend on the Champs-Élysées with all these strangers from all over France, they look absolutely thrilled to find each other.
1: Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by John Rick MacArthur. Rick is president and publisher of Harper's Magazine. He has worked as a reporter for numerous newspapers, including The Wall Street Journal and The Chicago Sun-Times. He was also an assistant editor at United Press International. He's the author of a number of books, including Second Front, Censorship and Propaganda in the 1991 Gulf War, and You Can't Be President, The Outrageous Barriers to Democracy in America. He writes for the French-language newspaper Les Devoir, and also for Harper's, of course, and he has developed a very strong reputation as a writer and publisher who is willing to stand up for freedom of speech and other increasingly contested liberal values. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to start off with a broad question, if I may, about the state of freedom of speech, because we there almost seems to be a controversy every week about some article or some statement or some comment that some person has made. Of course, Harper's experienced it itself quite recently, notably with Katie Royphy's piece on Twitter, Feminism, during which there was a storm even before it had been published, a kind of preemptive Twitter storm, and a most extraordinary attacks on her and Harper's and even a, a kind of attempted blackmailing of other Harper's contributors to stop contributing in a a kind of defiance of this magazine that would dare to publish such an article. And this happens more and more across the Western world, particularly in the US and in the UK. And it seems to me that one of the great threats to freedom of speech now is not so much the kind of the boot of the state clamping down on um, ideological sinners, but the mob, a kind of uh, this intolerant, illiberal mob, which presumes that it can go through life without ever encountering an idea that it finds disagreeable.
0: Yeah, it's a lot like a, a, a stoning, actually, an, an 18th century stoning or something. I, it's, uh, to me, it's, it's the most remarkable thing. I, part of me refuses to take it seriously, which is perverse, <laughs> because I have to take it seriously, because I'm not on social media. All this stuff is reported to me by my my public relations uh, person and, our, and, and my friends and so on, who are on social media. But when I do look into it and I actually read what people have said about me, most recently about the John Hockenberry piece we published, uh, who was describing his life post-Me Too in exile, as, as we called it, the violence and the fury mm-hmm. of the emails and the Twitter storm were remarkable. And even someone as hardened as, not hardened, but as used to it as I am, because I've been through a lot. I, I, I defended Salman Rushdie, uh, my name was in the newspaper, when it was scary, and I organized the counterattack. I really did organize, Jerry Maserati and I organized the counterattack in New York mm. uh, when everybody was terrified they were going to get killed. And uh, so I've been through much worse than, than Twitter, But even that being said, it's really remarkable. The ferocity is remarkable. And you can understand why people are intimidated. Hmm. And it is, of course, narrowing the debate because now uh, people are self-censoring as never before. The great paradox of this country, as Tocqueville pointed out a long time ago, he was wrong about a lot of things, actually, Tocqueville. But he was right about this, that, yes, you can say anything you want in the United States – and get away with it, so to speak. But you also uh, have to face marginalization, complete Mm. marginalization. You have to be willing to just step outside of society and live there Mm. because polite company and polite company today is Me Too orthodoxy, uh, diversity orthodoxy. For a while it was Free trade orthodoxy, which is something I want to talk about if we can, Mm. which is something that the ruling class and the financial interests love, those things cannot be talked about. Mm. They just can't be talked about. No one's going to volunteer to have their head cut off.
1: Yes. I wanted to ask you about where that ferocity comes from. because. It, it, that's mm. a very good description of it. And and almost like a metaphorical stoning is a very good description too. And you see it so often these days. I mean, for example, Jermaine Greer, a previously esteemed... Feminist now finds it very difficult to speak on campuses in the UK because she is trans skeptical. She doesn't think a man can become a woman, no matter how much hormone treatment he or she undergoes. You see it in relation to anyone who dared to venture any criticism whatsoever of the Me Too movement, who were in, immediately put lumped in with sexual predators themselves as kind of complicit in that supposed culture of sexual predatory behavior. And the response is always incredibly ferocious and horrifying sometimes, the things that are said about people. So what is the driver to that? Is it simply, where does such a kind of visceral sense of intolerance come from, do you think?
0: Well, I I think it comes from people feeling marginalized, paradoxically. They feel like they have no voice and that the media is, as Lewis Lapham used to say, an occupying army that has no respect for them. And suddenly along comes the internet and everyone's Mm. got their own printing press or or soapbox, and they can scream and and curse and say everything that they've always wanted to say but couldn't say it. And sometimes they get a reaction. Mm. So I suppose it's kind of exhilarating for someone who feels like they have no power, no place. As a citizen, because citizenship has has been passé in this country for sort of on and off, but for a long time, the whole idea of being a citizen and participating just doesn't have the the excitement or the weight of being able to scream on Twitter. Uh, you don't want to go to a a meeting and, <laughs> and debate other people when you can just sit at your computer, a uh, keyboard, and 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 say anything that comes into your head. So I have actually some sympathy for these people. Right. I really do. And it's an immense waste of time. Mm. If if I tell my writer friends, because everybody does it, I I I was witness to the, I think the birth of, I guess you could call it the liberal surrender to social media at the Penn banquet five years ago, I believe it was, when Salman Rushdie was, ironically, Salman Rushdie was the, uh, was the president of Penn. And they honored the chairman of Twitter. Uh, I can't remember his name. And at a certain point in the, he's, when you honor these guys, they buy a lot of tables. And that's the reason you do it. To me, that was enough. But somewhere in the middle of the program, they decided to make a, a, a protest against Turkish censorship, I think. Some the Turks had thrown some people in jail, as usual. And they did it by Twitter on the spot. So everybody, all these very famous writers raised their iPhones to the ceiling or to the sky. Uh, This is the Museum of Natural History on Central Park West and Twittered messages to the Turkish government like primitive men (laughs) discovering fire or something. It was the craziest thing I'd ever (laughs) seen. I said, I didn't realize how bad it was Mm -hmm. because, of course, this is three years before Trump gets elected president, but suddenly you go from liberals literary liberals celebrating Twitter Hmm. to Donald Trump using Twitter as his only form of communication, Hmm. it was the beginning of something horrible.
1: Yeah. I want to ask you in, in a minute about Penn and Rushdie and Charlie Hebdo and a few other things in relation to that organization in particular, but I just wanted to touch on something you said there about the sense of exhilaration some of these Twitch hunters or Twitter mobs seem to get. I thought there was a very good example of that recently in the UK in relation to Sir Roger Scruton, the famed and esteemed conservative philosopher who was sacked by the conservative government in response to a bit of a stitch-up by the New Statesman, which interviewed him and, and then took some of his quotes out of context and so on. And what was striking about that is that the New Statesman journalist who conducted this hit job took a photograph of himself drinking from a bottle of champagne and put it on Instagram and said, this is the feeling you get when you take down someone like Roger Scruton. And I, I, I often think that, I think the reason publishers like you are Im- important is that there is often a symbiotic relationship between this search for the exhilaration that comes from claiming a scalp or from knocking someone off their pedestal. And the cowardice that sometimes exists among traditional liberal institutions or even among some liberal publications who kowtow to that or who stop saying the things people don't want them to say or don't publish the thing people don't want them to publish. So I, I often think that the the process you describe where people are at home on their internet screaming and, and trying to get someone silenced is often energized and exacerbated by yeah. the... Yeah,
0: absolutely. and I And I... I didn't finish my my uh, point about the, the the people who should know better, because presumably the liberals of all people would know better. Yeah. I had a, I had a I can't actually reveal his name because I I'm, I'm trying to be ethical and and keeping my word is still important, although it less it's less and less important in this in this country. But a very prominent journalist called me yesterday to scream bloody murder at me about something we published yeah. in Harper's. And uh, I said to him, uh, uh, come on, you know. I I started out listening like publishers always do because I've been screamed at many times by writers and by targets of pieces and so on over the years. Lawyers also. And I calmed him down and I said, come on, you've got a point to make, you've got an argument to make, write a letter to the editor. And, uh, of course, if you write a letter to the editor, our our journalist, our writer, will have the, the right to reply. But isn't that the liberal ideal mm-hmm. after all? I mean, we, we keep arguing infinitely, as we hope, so, to the, where nobody gets hurt. In other words, you keep arguing and nobody, there's no bloodshed. And that is the liberal ideal. And he goes, no, 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 I don't want to do it. That's, that would be regressive because I say one thing, he says another, and it just goes on and on. So I said, but that's the whole point. We wanted to go on and on, to have a, a conversation and, and not have one winner and one loser. You know, have a little bit of pluralism in, mm. in the in the conversation. So a little diversity in the conversation, <laughs> if you'll pardon the word. And uh, But he, in the end, he refused to write the letter. He said, I won't do it. This is extraordinary. Just extraordinary. At least he didn't resort to Twitter to attack me. <laughs> yeah. He called me, which is better than nothing, Yes, but he wouldn't go for a conversation or for an argument. He's just not interested.
1: You mentioned the John Hockenberry piece that you guys published. It made me think about the difference between that and Ian Baruma's publication of Gian Gimeshi's piece about living with Me Too accusations, which was published in the New York Review of Books. And, of course, as a consequence, Baruma was elbowed out by the looks of things. There's still some discussion about whether he resigned or was pushed out, but it seems to me to have been an unholy marriage between those two things, Um, which I have thought about for the past few months is is a bigger scandal than people seem willing to recognise. Because someone of Baruma's stature, who's written about the crisis of tolerance, of course, in relation to the Netherlands and other parts of the world, to be pushed out over the publication of an article. And as he said, he feels it's necessary not to judge people before they've been taken to trial, not to um, refuse to publish people who've not been found guilty of anything in a court of law. So he was upholding what you might consider to be pretty strong liberal principles, and he's gone. So in the New York scene of publishing is that recognized as a problematic thing or is it brushed over
0: it's brushed over in fact i think the again there was a sense of exhilaration and triumph that ian had to had to walk the broom i had to walk the plank uh, i didn't have to walk the plank because i'm the publisher they can't fire me i can't fire myself uh, i suppose i could have resigned in disgrace but <laughs> the horrible thing about it is that there wasn't much protest there was a hun- there were 100 writers from new york review i think signed a letter, a polite letter saying, well, we don't approve of Gomeshi. We think this is excessive. It wasn't that tough a letter. It was better than nothing. But Ray Hederman has a lot to, to answer for. He's just, he's, he let down our side hmm. terribly. And this is a guy who comes out of Mississippi, grew up in Mississippi, and knows all about racial intolerance and how dangerous it was in the 60s to, for a white Southerner to defend civil rights for black people, uh, to give in to his staff. And I know this is what happened, that he was intimidated by his own staff and by the threat of a university press boycott, advertising boycott. And again, what world are we living in where university presses are threatening to boycott a a, a magazine for expressing an opinion, an unpopular opinion, or allowing some to express an, an unpopular point of view it's just it's just astonishing, mm. so that uh, Hederman was doubly obliged under from my point of view to defend not only the principle that his editor can publish something that people don 't like and not have to be and not have to quit or not have to be fired but also that you don 't ever give in to an advertiser boycott if you, the minute you give in to advertisers you 're finished as a publisher, and I worry now that New York Review has lost. It's its compass. It's 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 sense of what it was, uh, and that it's it's it, that it's going to be in trouble. I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. They, they don't really have an editor. They have I think uh, two editors who I haven't heard of, but they gave in on. Hederman has to know better mm. as a liberal than to give in to the mob mm. or to give in to advertiser pressure. But he did. It's a it is a catastrophe. And I'll just mm-hmm. say one other thing that. The, the irony, again, is that—or the depressing thing for me is that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, I could have written an op-ed piece for the New York Times saying that this is a bad thing. And they would have published it. Not anymore. I don't even bother to try. I have to write it in The Spectator, a conservative British uh, Tory-leaning uh, magazine. Mm. That's where I have to go to say this. Or maybe Le Monde Diplomatique. I write, I write now, I'm pretty much limited to to left and, and conservative, far left and conservative mm. publications.
1: Um, it's the exact same process yeah. in the United Kingdom where yeah. if you want to write something in defense of freedom of speech, you don't go to The Guardian and you don't go to The New Statesman, which you might have done 30 years ago. You you have to go to The Telegraph or The Spectator. But the Spectator, precisely,
0: um, which is what I did to when I finally figured out how I wanted to, to address it. I wrote it for the uh, to address the Baruma firing. It was a firing. I went to the spectator. Mm-hmm.
1: I wanted to ask you, uh, before we carry on with the yeah. censorship discussion, because I think that's such a crucial issue of our time, mm-hmm. on the Me Too phenomenon, which I find increasingly scary... And and one of the things that's most striking about it is it seems to me to have assumed almost a kind of McCarthyite feel where, particularly in Hollywood, as with McCarthyism, everyone fears the pointed finger and the exposure, which could come in a Facebook post or a tweet or an article relaying some bad date someone had or some bad sexual experience. Anything could happen to them at any moment. So there's this climate of fear, climate of censorship, and this sense that even speaking out against it is a scary thing to do i did i wrote a piece for the los angeles times about jeremy piven jeremy piven the actor made a very good point which is basically to ask the question what happened to the principle of innocent until proven guilty why are people assuming i'm guilty because of two accusations made on social media which i thought was a very good question but there seems to be an unwillingness even among liberals who are in favor of due process or or ought to be to call out this culture in which people's reputations are destroyed on the basis of accusation alone, what, what do you think is driving that fear to stand up for universal legal principles?
0: Well, there's, there's, a, I mean, there's famous play, The Crucible, describes it. I, I should have said a 17th century stoning, not an 18th century. I meant 18th century. We're talking Enlightenment. 17th century, we're talking Puritans in Massachusetts. Really uh, pursuing witch hunts, and this is this may be a peculiarly peculiarly American phenomenon. I've tried to figure this out, and I haven't, obviously, or I would have pronounced, made some kind of pronouncement. <laughs> but there's something in this country, this uh, and the way we were founded, that demands uh, periodic purifications, and so there's the sale. It's before the United States. It's still America. Mm. There's the 17th century witch, witch trials in Salem, where there's just a, a hysteria. When you read the accounts of what was really going on, it's really extraordinary. And very, very much like what happened during Prohibition, there was hysteria in the country. They banned alcohol. <laughs> Imagine, it's so hard <laughs> to believe that t- selling or, or, uh, or drinking alcohol in a public place was illegal for 11 years, was it? No, more than that. 12 years? I can't remember now. And there was another kind of ritual purification and uh, sort of hysteria. And then, of course, you have the 50s uh, and McCarthy and the Red Scare, although there was an earlier Red Scare during Woodrow Wilson that doesn't get enough attention. Uh, The first Red Scare was in 1919, where Wilson whipped up fear of foreigners and coming after World War I, when if you were a dissident and you were opposed to, to America's involvement in World War II, like uh, Eugene Dubbs, you get thrown in jail mm. for sedition. Mm. There was something called the Palmer Raids, named after the Attorney General of the United States, uh, whose name was Palmer. They rounded up hundreds, I think thousands of people and just threw them in jail because of their alleged communist leanings or left-wing leanings. This, is, of course, after the, the Russian Revolution. So that was another Period of of ritual purification where we had mm. to prove our Americanness or our Christianity or our, uh, well, more precisely, our Protestant version of Christianity. So, Me Too may be another event in a line, long line of events of self purification, except that it comes with this underlay of radical. Anybody can have sex any way they want, anywhere they want, with whomever they want. And that doesn't really go, to mm. go with McCarthyism. So it may be some kind of a new phenomenon. We also went through a period, if you're interested, of, of uh, hysteria about daycare centers mm. in the 90s. Yep. Mm-hmm. Men and women, male and female daycare workers, were uh, convicted of uh, abusing children. And it, the testimony in the trials against these people sounded a lot like the testimony in the Salem Witch Trials. And we published, Harper's published a piece. And again, (laughs) I am a man of the left and I have been my whole life. I'm I'm very consistent. But we had to find a right winger, Dorothy Rabinowitz, who writes for the Wall Street Journal. We didn't find her. She found us to write a piece that ultimately exonerated one of these daycare workers, Kelly Michaels, who during the trial had been acu- accused of um flying around on a broom by the ch- they allowed the children to testify the four-year-olds and the five-year-olds and eventually somebody took it up at the Center for Constitutional Rights downstairs from us here on, at 666 Broadway and litigated it and took it to the New Jersey st- uh, state su- supreme court and they vacated the they oh they threw out the conviction so this is not new mm. But with the uh, amplification of
1: social media, uh, it is something new. Mm. It is something crazy. It's interesting because in in Britain, we often get the ripple effect from American hysteria. So we did in the 1990s, we had our own daycare panics. We had the satanic ritual abuse panic came to the UK in various parts of the country. Children taken away unmasked from their parents and then returned at a later date And then, of course, Me Too has come to the UK and is spreading through Europe too in different, expressing itself in different ways in different countries. I think you're right. It's very interesting to me how something like Me Too both has echoes of the past, but also has something new. So, I mean, it really echoes. I always think of the great line from The Crucible, is the accuser holy now? And this sense that the accuser is this figure you mustn't ever contradict. And that, so that echo from the past is right there in Me Too. But then the newness of it, and I say this also as a man off the left and he's always con- considered himself left-wing, the newness of uh, some of the contemporary panics is that they're often driven not by religious hotheads, but by feminists and not by kind of, you know, hardcore anti-communist right-wingers, but mm-hmm. by people who would describe themselves as radical left-wingers. So I think... Is it is there possibly a broader story here? Uh, certainly, in the way in which these things express themselves, about the crisis of the left.
0: Well, uh, just I have a very close woman editor friend, whose attitude is she said it to me several times. Look, it's like the French Revolution. You know, it's not fair, but heads heads are going to have to roll for the for for the, for the patriarchy and for the abuse in offices and across society and so on to to um, to end. And I, I take her point. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I, I've, even, even with my predilections I would, that I would have favored the terror uh, but um, followed the overthrow of the king in France or the, the execution of the king in France. But, you know, reasonable people can disagree about what the best way is to, to combat sexism and wage discrimination and unequal opportunity and so on and so forth. But to me, these are, things, these are this is old hat. It's old news. In other words, I, came, I grew up young adult and became an adult in the '70s, when I thought intellectual feminism was sort of at its height. It had become a, 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 a real, you know, it had become a department in universities, for one thing, and there were a lot of very distinguished feminist writers writing on different levels and on different themes and so on, published in Harper's Magazine and elsewhere. And I kind of, I guess I naively had the thought that the argument was won.
1: Mm.
0: The feminists had won the day. It, so it may be also that the backlash that started with Ronald Reagan, this is a backlash against the backlash. In other words, mm. the, uh, Reagan comes up just as the Equal Rights Amendment has been proposed in the United States, an amendment to the Constitution, which would finally give the... Uh, the Constitution, teeth against sex discrimination. Technically, the I think it's the 14th Amendment, which outlawed, in effect, racial discrimination and doesn't mention gender, uh, should take care of it, but it hasn't. It never did. So the Equal Rights Amendment comes up and um, for ratification. Almost got there. Missed by five states, it would have banned discrimination on the basis of sex, very straightforwardly. But Phyllis Schlafly and uh, her group of Reaganite right-wingers, with a curious mix of arguments, came out against it. Some were traditional. We want women to maintain their roles as mothers and so on and so forth. And But she also had interesting arguments. Like, I don't want my kids serving, my ch- my daughters serving in the military mm-hmm. and going to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And she was quite far far right. I knew one of her daughters. And she, She's a formidable person. I worked on this on Times with her. She was a, an intern. But I sympathize with Phyllis Schladle's argument against forcing anybody to, to, to serve in the yeah, military. But, but anyway, the her, her argument was largely conservative or right-wing, and the ERA was stopped. It was scuttled, which is a kind of a scandal. So when I get into arguments with uh, Me Too people – I tend to say, well, gee, wouldn't it be more constructive? Instead of putting Garrison Keillor or John Hockenberry in the stocks or stoning them or driving Al Franken out of the Senate, which was the worst, really a terrible thing to happen, why don't you uh, re-energize the Equal Rights Amendment? Why don't we start a new campaign to get that started? Because my theory was if a woman is paid the same as a man— or you know that the odds are that the woman in the cubicle across from you or the office across from you is getting paid the same as you, odds are she might end up being your boss. And that's going to get you to cool your jets before you decide to yeah. try sexual harassment <laughs> yeah. on her or coercion or yeah. whatever. But when I try this argument, which to me sounds like a reasonable liberal's argument, I get, I get insulted yeah. and accused of mansplaining and the usual stuff.
1: That's one of the uh, most extraordinary things about a lot of these discussions, which is the um, difficulty of criticizing or raising objections or raising points because of the the identity politics narrative, which says that only certain people can say certain things and others should back off. But one thing I've thought about me too, one of the reasons I have a real problem with it is not because of what it does to men, although I do think some men have been treated very badly as a result of the pointed finger of the accusers, but also because of, of the message it communicates about women. And I always thought that, and Katie Roifey makes this point very well, where feminism was once about emphasising the autonomy and capacity of women and their ability to negotiate public life and work life without needing the sexist scaffolding of constant assistance and and help and everything else. Whereas now it seems increasingly to have flipped and become uh, an ideology or a narrative which says that women are fragile and vulnerable and at risk. So uh, what I find frustrating is that when I when I guess when people like us criticize Me Too and other contemporary phenomena, we think we're making a a kind of progressive uh, left-leaning argument, but it gets fired back at us that we're misogynists or we're racist, depending on the issue. So how do you confront that kind of challenge where name-calling takes the place of engagement at that level?
0: Well, I'm uh, evidently not doing a very good job of it because I I had an infamous now uh, confrontation with Anne-Marie Tremonti, I think it is, on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation um, last uh, September on the radio uh, over the Hockenberry piece. And I can see, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm media trained. So I uh, mostly, if I'm going to do something like this, I insist on going on live. Uh, because that's the only way you get an, a word in edgewise. Yeah. I mean, I was on, yeah. I was on again, I'm, I'm, I'm flinging my left-wing credentials at your audience. But I was on, I take, I do the hard work. I, I take the chances. I went on Bill O'Reilly on The O'Reilly Factor right after 9-11, Uh, when the country was, again, hysterical, and they were waving the flag and calling for vengeance and so on, to stand up for, I guess, for civil liberties and for the Bill of Rights. Uh, You know, O'Reilly was furious with me, and they never let me on the show again, because... (laughs) Anyway, but with Tremonti, I thought, Canadians, who could be more reasonable than a Canadian? These are people who like to... They're polite and so on, but they set up the show with pre-recorded interviews denouncing the New York Review and uh, Baruma and Gomeshi, who was Canadian and had been tried for criminal assault and acquitted, by the way, Mm -hmm. uh, or sexual assault and, and, and criminal assault and acquitted. And so there's about seven or eight minutes of this before I come on, and there's never a mention of the context. In other words, what is Hockenberry? Who is he? And what is his... What's his argument or anything? Nothing. It's left to me. So I say right out of the, the, the gate, uh, look, your audience might be interested in knowing that he's a, a paraplegic, he's in a wheelchair, and don't you think that is something your audience should know? It puts, it puts sexual harassment from this guy in a wheelchair in a different context from, say, Harvey Weinstein or uh, Charlie Rose or some other celebrated predator And she went crazy on me. She got furious with me. What's that got to do with anything? I said, well, he obviously can't jump out of his chair and attack anyone, for starters. So if you're feeling, I I wasn't able to elaborate, but if you're feeling threatened by him, well, I mean, words can hurt, but Mm -hmm. he certainly can't do anything to you physically. And so this apparently just is not uh, acceptable context for the discussions. But then I said... Why can't Hockenberry make an argument on two levels, three levels, four levels? Because it has to be one—it's uh, it's black and white. It's got to be one thing or another. It's either I apologize completely, which, is part, which was part of the lead-in to the show. They had a guy—oh, no, on another show I, I heard uh, the perfect apology from someone who had been accused of, 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 of predatory sexual practices— and this guy, he was a professional actor, and they they played his apology, his confession and his apology on a show called On the Media, uh, on Na- which is on National Public Radio. And the host, the host of the show applauded this because this is the perfect kind of confession and apology. So this guy could be allowed back into, suc- into, into society, whereas Hockenberry... Because he hadn't apologized properly, he sort of apologized, but not entirely, is not allowed to work again. He can't come back into radio. He can't come back into society. So I then accused Tremonti of, of having adopted a Soviet tone. Mm-hmm. Because uh, to me, this sounded like communist or uh, Stalinist or, or Khmer Rouge rehabilitation. In other words, the only way you can get off the hook is to confess totally to your crime in the right tone of voice and and she was again outraged and said have you ever worked in the Soviet Union as if it mattered whether we (laughs) I I, I should have said uh, clearly you did because you learned their you learned their methods so I'm sort of at a loss as to what that's how I've tried to confront it is with a with a little bit of sarcasm some sense of humor and and and, but also sticking to my guns. The problem is nobody is going to invite me now that I've been on that show uh, to some colloquy with uh, mm. with angry me too me Too-ers. For example, we we tried to get together a panel of women, all women, moderated by a woman to to discuss Katie Royfy's piece, which would include Katie Royfy of course, on the panel. No prominent woman we invited. Uh, would accept the
1: invitation because they couldn't be seen with her. They could not be seen with her in public. It, it, it's fascinating because as you were speaking, I was thinking of Stalinism and the demand for the public retraction and the public self-flagellation, and that does seem to be a central part of a lot of the features of contemporary culture. On, on Women and Me Too, at, at Spiked we published a piece called Meet the Women Worried About Me Too where we got together 13 female voices and it was a struggle coming up with right. 13 prominent women. You know, Lionel Shriver was one, um, Emily Joffey and Christina hoff Summers, and others who were willing to put forward a critical perspective and I think those, those are incredibly valuable voices. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. It would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. Just to historicise a bit more where we're at, because you mentioned Rushdie earlier on, we recently passed the 30th anniversary of the fatwa, and so we're having these discussions about Twitter mobs and metaphorical stonings and the clampdown on anything that smacks of a controversial opinion, 30 years after the, the fatwa against Rushdie, which always makes me feel quite depressed because it makes me feel that, in a sense, the Ayatollah won. You know, Rushdie may have won the battle because, thankfully, he's still alive. He's still publishing. He's defying the people who would like him to be killed by carrying on being a writer. But the war seems to have been won by that um culture of intolerance which presumes that if you write something offensive about my religion or my way of life or my identity, you deserve to be punished. So what take us back a little bit to the role that you played in defending Rushdie and why you thought that was an important thing to do.
0: Well we Harper's published with the only magazine English language magazine probably the only magazine, to publish an excerpt of the Satanic Verses. But we we published it before the fatwa was declared, before the riots in Bradford and so on. So then when the shit hit the fan and the fatwa was declared and people went nuts, the uh, book-selling establishment and publishing establishment in the United States really uh, disgraced itself. Uh, Barnes & Noble and Walden Books... Uh, took the books off the shelves i think I forget which one decided not to sell them at all. The other one uh whichever it was uh, said you we'll, you can buy the book but we 're going to hide them in the basement or something like some crazy thing like that and so there was widespread panic and uh and and fear and I said to Jerry uh right over here in this in the hallway over here, you know since we published him, we have a um, an obligation to do something. And he said, why don't we do a reading and a public reading? So we had to recruit as many famous writers as we could to read from the satanic verses. And this is again, a story I've only been able to tell in the, in the spectator because the, the, the liberal media doesn't want to hear this. But Susan Sontag, who was the head of Penn at that time, uh, flinched at the last minute, we'd organized this thing and we've got all these very famous writers <laughs> coming and every, everybody's been assigned a section from the novel to read out loud. And there are people uh, chanting, you know, death to Rushdie out on Broadway. This was at Houston or Broadway. Metal detectors, the whole thing. And um, Susan Sontag comes up to me and says, wouldn't it be better if we didn't read from the novel? Because that might incite people. It might, it might offend them and make it worse. I said... The whole point of this <laughs> is to is to stand up for the ability for our right to read it and to speak it, uh, and and it would it would be a terrible defeat, a terrible pu- public relations defeat, and moral defeat if people censored themselves and just made statements. And so, Robert Stone, a distinguished American novelist, was sitting s- sitting there, and he was. Uh, We drew straws. Or no, I I decided the order of of reading because he was the first to say yes. Very courageous guy. He said, of course I'll read. Of course I'll do it. And I said, Bob, please don't give in to this nonsense. Read from the novel. Read what you were assigned to read. And Stone came out uh, and read it. And uh, the whole place relaxed. And it came off. And the panic subsided. Uh, Books went back on sale. Back to press and so on and so forth. So I've been through moments like this where, you know, liberals got scared, uh, but other liberals uh, stood up for liberal values, and uh, and conservatives as well, right wingers as well, stood up for the First Amendment in that in that case. And once the panic broke, people came came to their senses. With me too, uh, no such thing has happened. I keep thinking. We're going to publish something uh, that's so decisively logical or rational <laughs> that it'll break the panic and people will say, what, what happened? Yeah. Why did we go mad yeah. collectively? Yeah. But it seems to get worse and worse and worse to the point now where Joe Biden, a guy I just cannot stand, uh, we just trashed him in a cover story in Harper's Magazine What a terrible! much worse than I thought, what what a terrible real reactionary he was over the years, you know, in bed with Wall Street and the banks and supported all this horrible anti-crime legislation that guaranteed more blacks would be put in jail than whites and so on for the same sort of offenses. Just a terrible politician, terrible person. Uh, But even so, he was being pushed as the great moderate uh, middle-of-the-road alternative to Bernie Sanders, Mm to run for president, but none of the things that we said or that anybody else said had any impact yeah. on the debate. The only thing that's had an impact on the debate is the fact that he's a real touchy-feely guy and yeah. likes to grab people from behind and kiss them on the head and squeeze them, and so and he's squeezed a lot of women's uh, uh, shoulders and elbows over the years. So that is mm. more likely to drive him out of the race than any of the bad things he did Sucking up to Wall Street or, or yeah. uh, being unfair to minorities. It's, it's just – it's absolutely – and, and there doesn't seem to be any, any sign of it abating. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm answering your question but – because again, you had a cadre – you had a sort of a, a, a baseline and a you know, sort of under underpinning of the liberal idea uh, and the constitution – in 1980, uh, what was it, 80, 87 or 88? I've forgotten what year the fatwa was. A-89. 89. 89, yeah. sorry, 1989. Today, it feels like it's just kind of uh, washed away.
1: Yeah. it's What I find interesting about the Rushdie affair is... It was the same thing in England. I mean, you yeah. had
0: liberals who should have known better criticizing him. Absolutely right. Him, like my friend John Le- David Cornwell and... And others, It was Harold Pinter by himself with 10 other people at first, right? It
1: was a tiny number, and um, a lot of the people refused to stand up for him, whether from fear or or whatever it was. But what I find extraordinary about the current period, if if we look at the United Kingdom, for example, um, we now have institutionalized the fatwa mentality. So, for example, the Metropolitan Police, which for a period of time was charged with looking after Salman Rushdie in the early days, now has a stipulation, an actual published document about hate speech, which describes um, has a list of things that can be considered Islamophobic, which includes arguing that Islam is a rigid religion or arguing that uh, Islam is inferior to Western values. And what you realise is that the very police force, which for a period of time had to look after Rushdie, might today actually arrest him. So and if we fast forward to 2015 and the extraordinary situation where 242 authors took umbrage at um, Penn America's decision to give a, a Courage Award to Charlie Hebdo, which I thought was the most astonishing abdication of a writer's responsibility to defend even those who have been murdered at their desks. They,
0: they boycotted the PEN Dinner. They actually boycotted the PEN Dinner, which was honoring Charlie Hebdo that year. Yeah. And um, I'm glad you brought that up because in countries where, again, (laughs) because of Charlie Hebdo particularly, they should know better, uh, there's also this new uh, sort of uh, anti-hate speech uh, mob mentality taking hold that's very frightening. And I'm speaking of France. I'm half French and so I do a lot of uh, uh, TV and radio in France when when I have a chance. And I was on a show uh, about a month and a half ago, and the French have now proposed all these laws to to suppress the Internet, to suppress hate speech on the Internet um, uh, and and punish anybody who says something insulting. And, of course, right now it's aimed at uh, uh, anti-Semitic, anti-homosexual, anti-black, and anti— Feminist, I guess, anti-woman mm. speech, but I'm sitting there on a round table on a TV show, and everybody's saying, "Humph, yes, yes, we've got to suppress. It's terrible, and the, we can't allow this sort of hate speech to to go on unfiltered on the internet." It's understood that it's the the government and the courts that are going to decide what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. They're going to decide how to enforce the law. Mm. Um, And I said, my God, after what you've been through with Charlie Hebdo, uh, you don't understand that it depends on your point of view, what's offensive. And if you start trying to choose between points of view, uh, then there will be no points of view expressed uh, freely anymore. How can you defend Charlie Hebdo and not defend the anti-Semites and the racists and so on and so forth on the Internet? And here, here we are in the country of Voltaire. So it seem, seems to have spread there as well, although there I see a plot between Macron and Zuckerberg of Facebook. <laughs> they met. I didn't yeah. realize until I'd been there that they had a big yeah. sort of summit meeting.
1: That's right. And
0: that's where they, I think they hatched some of these ideas about how to police the Internet more effectively in such a way that Zuckerberg <laughs> continues to make a
1: lot of money <laughs> while, while some people get to speak and some people don't. Yes, it's, it, in fact, on the morning of this Podcast: um, Facebook has announced that it has expelled uh, numerous British extremists, including the British National Party, Britain First, Tommy Robinson, and various other kind of hard right wingers. So uh, explicit political censorship right. is depends on whose
0: ox is being gored, but nobody is making that argument yeah. from the traditional. are was saying yes, hate speech is is horrible, yeah, unacceptable.
1: I, I think the, the governments and liberals often don't realize the extent to which. There is an interplay between their unwillingness to defend freedom of speech, including the freedom to offend, and the rise of a violence of censorship. So I've always thought that something like the Charlie Hebdo massacre was in many ways the the kind of militant wing of political correctness, because it was driven by entirely the same idea, which is that if you insult my religion, and in Western Europe, there are Laws, which, you know, Michelle Welbeck, for example, was taken to court because he said Islam is the most stupid and grotesque religion. Brigitte Bardot has been fined for uh, inflammatory comments about the Islamic production of meat and so on. So you think to yourself, these guys have grown up in a country which has told them again and again... Uh, these guys, by the, I mean the Charlie Hebdo killers, which has told them again and again that it's awful if anyone criticizes their religion. And you suddenly realize they didn't necessarily have to get this murderous idea from someone in the East. They grew up in a society which told them they had the right not to be offended, which I think is, a, is an incredibly dangerous right to give to anyone.
0: Right. Where's the counterattack coming yeah. from? Uh, I mean, there are intelligent uh, and, and rational... Muslims who try to make this argument. The problem is a a white liberal making the argument has less authority, moral authority now, than a Muslim or an African-American or a feminist. Um, And I'm afraid I've even done a little bit of, uh, uh, to be perfectly honest, I've done a little compensation too, in the sense that we did pick Hockenberry. We didn't pick him. You know, he pitched a piece to us. But I remember thinking to myself, well, after all, he's in a wheelchair. It's not going to be so easy for them to to attack him. There's got to be some sympathy out there for a guy who's paralyzed. And um, it's worse than that. I mean, he's lost – again, he can't work. His wife left him. His children are angry at him and so on and so forth. He's had a, He's had a rough patch. But he can't do much mm. anymore. And he never could do much to threaten anyone. I mean, he was apparently – Accused of bullying people in the office, not just coming on to guests who he invited onto his show afterwards by coming on to them, asking them for a drink. But I, I probably wouldn't have, you know, I, I felt safer with him. Yeah. yeah. I feel safer having Lionel Shriver and um, Katie Roife make the argument than me make the argument. Uh, And that's not good either. I should be able to make the argument too. Uh, I agree. Just like, uh, you know, Lionel Shriver's big stunt was to put a sombrero on at a literary festival in Australia, I think Mm. it was, to say, here I am appropriating someone else's culture and daring to write about it to challenge people about this new orthodoxy that a white person can only write about white people and so on and so forth. They can't imagine another character outside of their class or race or whatever.
1: Yeah. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free. And donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at wwwspike onlinecom In the brief time we've got left, I want to ask you a little bit about contemporary politics. So you write in French. As you say, you've been on French TV. You speak about French affairs. Of course, France is currently experiencing what I would consider to be a quite exciting revolt, which is very sustained over a long period of time, every weekend for the past 20 or so weekends. A populist revolt. We have a populist revolt in Britain in the form of Brexit. There are populist things happening across Europe. And of course, there's a populist thing in the US too, but it's a bit more complicated and filtered and and strange perhaps. But I wonder how you feel about these kind of kind of bottom-up uh, demands for a new kind of politics or a new approach to politics, do you feel positive about them as a man of the left?
0: Well, I'm a little bit divided because my conclusion, uh, the conclusion I drew after interviewing the Gilets Jaunes on La Champs-Élysées, uh, beginning of March, I wrote, I wrote something about it, I can't say, I'm, I'm not an expert, and I spent a couple of hours with these these people, was partly... I'm a little, a little disappointed that they don't want to organize a political party. I think everybody who follows it knows that there's a, most of the gilets jaunes are actually offended by the idea that they would resort to conventional politics uh, and actually run a list of candidates or have a leader, a clear leader. And uh, as I was listening to people and talking to people on the street there, uh, I began to realize that what they really cherished – was being together, mm-hmm. that what they seemed to be really in, in search of was human warmth. Yeah. And since I'm a longtime critic of, uh, f- first of all, free trade, orthodox free trade, I'm also a longtime critic of Internet culture. Um, I'm, a, I'm a longtime critic of the concentration of wealth and, and of the, the spread of big box shopping malls and Grands Chiffres in French, which are destroying the, the downtowns. Of Villages and towns and cities all over the world, but in France as well, uh, I have I, leapt to the conclusion that these people they 're not uh, starving these people mm. they 're not doing well they 're poor or they 're lower middle class or uh, lower lower middle class um, uh, but they 're isolated more than anything else, they feel isolated and ignored. Mm. And that the Internet is the god that failed. Uh, Internet is, notwithstanding the fact that it puts you out to a lot of people, which I think is great, that the the hope that you could uh, connect with more people and have a larger community has been smashed to bits, that it's more of an isolating uh, phenomenon than than something that brings people together. So to physically get together every weekend on the Champs-Élysées with all these strangers, all these people you didn't know, and then you become friends with, from all over France, was empowering, uh, ennobling, fun. They looked absolutely thrilled mm. to find each other, which makes it all the crazier that the cops were so violent. Mm. The day I was there, they were not. They would obviously somebody that were to come down to to lay off and not beat anybody up or throw tear gas. But these people, I think, don't want to stop demonstrating because they don't want to go back to their lives of isolation and atomization yeah. in front of the screen. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, part-time work. France is now afflicted like, like the United States. I'm not sure what the state of it, how bad it is in the UK of people working three jobs where they used to be able to work one. Well, one of the places you're, you're able to associate with other Trump. humans, even yeah. if you hate your job, is at work at the office. If you're working three part-time jobs, uh, it's harder to get to know people, harder yeah. to be, be with people. So I wish they would become a political movement that would overthrow the power structure in France and throw Macron out and so on and so forth. They don't see it that way. They, they seem to say – and Serge Alimi, the editor of Le Monde Diplo, who said this to me also – why would we stop? Why would we settle for a political party where we get noticed a little bit or we elect five representatives to, uh, to, the, to the National Assembly – when winning, quote unquote, in that way, we all have to go home and, and resume our awful isolated lives.
1: Yeah,
0: I completely agree. So, so I said on, on French TV, they said, well, isn't, the pop, isn't populism a threat to democracy? I said, on the contrary, uh, populism is a response to the suppression of democracy. And the two examples that I used were the French rejection uh, of the the referma- referendum where they rejected the European Constitution, 2005, mm-hmm. by 55%. Uh, a year later, two years later, Sarkozy rams through the tra- Treaty of Liz- Lisbon, which essentially is the European <coughs> Constitution by another name, and parliament adopts it, and no one can say anything. Now it's happening with Brexit. Yeah. Whatever you think of Brexit, 52% of the British people voted to leave the European <clears throat> Union, and it looks like there's a, I hate to use the word conspiracy, but some kind of arrangement between the two principal parties to, pre- to prevent it from happening. Yeah. It's very, it, to me, it's very similar to the French situation. So yeah. what do you expect? So people go into the street because they're, they're being ignored, and democracy, such as it is, uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't function. In favor, um, in, in, in the name of the people.
1: I completely agree with your um, depiction of the populist moment as a, as a search for solidarity, a search yeah. for community, a search for a sense of collectivity. And That's the word, uh, solidarity. And, and, it's,
0: uh, fr- and fr- In France, they would say fraternity. Yes. It's the fraternity part of liberté, égalité, fraternité. Absolutely. That's what they want. And and that's what I find quite radical about it because
1: it is a search for solidarity against the individuating dynamic of neoliberalism, against the individuating dynamic of the new woke politics where it's all about the self and against the third way and all these things which tell you you're just an individual And which tell you that, you know, you're a small part of a large machine that you could never possibly understand.
0: And I I wanted to say this because I wanted to say it from the beginning, uh, before we run out of time, that I started out, uh, my woke moment was realizing that free free trade was the free trade doctrine, the way it's practiced and debated in this in this country, especially is a canard. It's just it's a it's a fraud. And. It's uh, sad to say, again, it's it's John Gray, the great British, I think, philosopher, who started out as an advisor to Thatcher and then went way off the reservation and turned against free trade, is the guy who understands this better, better than I do even. Because he understands that free trade, which is a little bit sort of like the economic version of the Internet, where you say no tariffs, no controls, anybody can sell anything. Anywhere they want, whenever they want, uh, by their rules, it doesn 't just destroy the local uh, steel industry or the local uh, farmers or whatever uh, the tariff used to protect, it also destroys the culture it steamrolls the culture and once you 've destroyed a culture, and I know what it is in france i you know i 've sat at the bar in these little towns that used to have a real commerce, uh, you know real jobs and a local factory and so on and so forth, where people had a sense of community, wasn't perfect, but at least they had something that they could, they could gather around, uh, all of a sudden they have nothing. Yeah. They have nowhere to go. And where do you, how do you recreate that? Yeah. Once the culture, that, that, that centre-ville culture is destroyed, uh, high street culture, whatever, uh, uh, you can't just reconstruct it like Notre Dame or wherever yes, You can't
1: rebuild it. Absolutely. I want to throw in one more yeah, quick question, yeah, yeah. if I may, yeah. um, because I, I agree. I, I, the thing that surprises yeah. me about the mainstream left's opposition to the populist thing is I think they fail to see the anti-capitalist, anti-neoliberal component, which to me is very strong. But I wanted to ask you just finally. And then just to say that the, the mainstream, this is the, the debate is going to turn against
0: Trump on free yes. trade yeah. in the coming election. And a lot of liberal Democrats refuse to acknowledge that free trade nafta the deal with china they're not free trade deals but they're called free trade deals uh are what alienated
1: yeah. enough trump voters uh, enough obama voters to push them to vote for trump and that's that's the kind of thing i wanted to finish on and to ask you about yeah. to, to what extent do you think someone like Bernie Sanders is capable of doing the kind of thing you've just mentioned, because it strikes me that almost without realising it himself, Bernie is engaged in a battle against the new woke left. When he says things like class is more important than race and gets a huge pushback, although I think he's absolutely right. When he says things like stop calling me an old white man and talk to me about my policies and my vision of the economy. If he took a few risks, I think he could present pretty good populist left-wing alternative, not only to Trump, but also to the mainstream democratic establishment?
0: Yeah, that's my hope. And of course, I'm, <laughs> uh, I know him a little bit. I don't, I'm not pretending to be an advisor, but I, when I, the two times I've spoken with him, I've, I've emphasized uh, that he's got, to, he's got to stand up to the, to the free traders or the fake free traders, but he also has to stand up to political correctness. Because if the minute he gives on political on political correctness, he kind of sabotages his class argument and we're all in this together, and so on. Uh, the minute he gives into identity politics, but he also hands Trump a gift because Trump can just ridicule him uh, the way he ridicules uh, Elizabeth Warren for having claimed she had Indian uh, uh, Native American ancestry, and uh, it's going to be important. Because this is the thing that was remarkable about it when he ran the last time is you'd see uh, construction workers who, you know, back in the 60s would have been racist, anti, even anti-Semitic, uh, cheering for Bernie Sanders because he understood the class issue and he understood that the mainstream Democratic Party with the Republicans had sold out the working class in this country with NAFTA and with, uh, with the—it's the, called permanent normal trade relations with, uh, with China. So Trump talks the talk. He doesn't believe anything he says. And people say, well, at least he says it. And if, if Sanders can, can, can weigh in on this and keep uh, even with Trump on trade issues, I think he should pick Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, as his running mate. He has a chance to win. He'll, he'll win back all the people— uh, who voted for Trump? Mm. Remember, there are about 8 million Obama voters mm-hmm. who voted for Trump. And uh, the election turned on the votes in Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Uh, the Electoral College vote, it's about 80,000 people, I think they figured out. If they'd gone the other way, uh, the Electoral College would have favored Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. But I guarantee you, I've interviewed a lot of these people, they're alienated, angry ex-factory workers who saw their jobs uh, sent to uh, Mexico or China because they would work for uh, 50 cents an hour or a dollar an hour, a dollar an hour in Mexico. And um, the Democratic Party is not interested in their problems. And I've seen this in the, the few confrontations I've had since then with mainstream Democrats. They will not address the class issue. They will not talk about the working class. And we mean we're We're talking about about all colors, Mm -hmm. all races, Mm -hmm. uh, all genders, uh, uh, including transgenders. It's everybody uh, getting the shaft from above. And the more they do the identity politics, uh, the more it chops up the the market and makes it hard for somebody like Sanders to win. Um, You 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 better believe that uh, the Clinton-Obama people— are going to, they've already done a lot to try to uh, sabotage Sanders in the first two months. They were clearly leaking stories about sexism in the campaign and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. He's got to stand up to that if he's going to win. Rick, thank you very much. Thank you very much.